What does that look like? What, what, is that, what does that represent to us? And, and it's, it's saving grace, yes, but it's far more than saving grace. And so today I'm going to talk to you, and we're going to kind of do a Rocket Bible-style ride through the book of Galatians. And if you are familiar with your scripture, this is going to be great. If you don't know your scripture, it's going to be even better. So here's the deal. As far as Christianity goes from the New Testament perspective, there are essentially, beyond the Gospels, three books that would be considered foundational or pillars to the understanding of the Christian faith, right? Without a doubt. Some would argue four, but three essentially are what would be considered absolutely essential, non-optional non books. And they're Romans, Ephesians, and the book of Galatians. And it's from these three books, the others accentuate the same ideas, but these three books lay the foundation of what essentially the gospel is all about. And these books were written by a man named Paul. And to give you a little bit of background on Paul, Paul was a guy who was raised in Judaism. He was, be, the very first words out of his mouth essentially were scripture. So he knew the Bible more than he knew anything else in the world. He not only knew the, the Old Testament, he knew the traditions of the Jews, he knew the what's, the why's, the when's, the how's. They literally had to memorize books of the Bible. Paul, they also had a commentary called the Mishnah, which was the spiritual understanding of the Old Testament. So rest assured, Paul not only knew the Torah, he knew the Old Testament, but he probably knew the Mishnah exceptionally well. Paul was a member of, he was a disciple of a man named Gamaliel, and he was a protege to the high Jew, Jewish council called the Sanhedrin. Just to give you an understanding of what that means, like less than one-tenth of one percent of all Jewish uh, boys would actually be able to go on to the higher education. So what they would do, this whole culture, this is an amazing thing, if you, and you can understand why the Bible means so much and why Jesus is literally the word of God. If you want to know me, know my word. This is what he says. But he took an entire group of people, and from the time they were children, from the time they could begin to speak, they were taught the scripture all the way through. In just completely saturated in the scripture. And as they progressed in age, they were tested for competence. And if your competence was high, you got to move on. If your competence was not high, well, they kind of diverted you into another occupation, right? But the entire culture was based around the text. And I teach this here so that we can understand this. You take a guy, for instance, like Peter. Peter was nothing more than an ordinary fisherman in that culture, yet he could expound the word of God like Nobody, other than, and he was probably second only to Paul in his understanding, and yet Peter was nothing more than a mere fisherman. So if you want to know what happened, Peter probably reached a certain age, and you're like, well, Peter, look, this isn't cutting it, man. You're just, you know, you're kind of at the point, you know, fishing might be a good occupation for you. He could go no further, yet he was super knowledgeable in the word of God. All of them could say things off the bat. Matthew was a tax collector, and he could quote Old Testament prophecy. This was done to fulfill this. He, how did he know that? You see Stephen being stoned in the book, like with stones, not literally. He was being stoned in the book of Acts, right? And as he's being stoned in the book of Acts, he's giving a complete history of the Jewish people because the entire culture was raised in the knowledge of the text. And so when you put a guy like Paul out there, you're talking about an echelon of knowledge that is, you just didn't get there. You could get to the school, and you could get to the higher learning, but you did not get to the Sanhedrin. You did not get to the council. Paul was standing next to the most famous Jewish teacher of all. They know this guy even to this day, Gamaliel. He was a disciple of Gamaliel. 
right? So what does that tell you? Paul knew what he was talking about. You didn't even get in the room if you didn't know what you were talking about. You didn't even enter the conversation if you didn't know what he was talking about. And God took this guy named Paul. Paul became lit up with the Spirit, lit up with the Gospel, and he writes two-thirds of the New Testament to explain to us what Jesus has done in context to the Old Testament, to explain to us and reveal to us the meanings of the Old Testament, to show us the bridge between the Old Testament, Christ the Revelator, the Messiah, revealing the new. And so we're going to talk to you a little bit about the book of Galatians this morning, and we're going to do a little flyby here, and I'm going to give you some understanding on it. But to understand where Galatia is, you see this little place down here is called Galatia. Galatia is interesting in history because they were founded, the people that lived in Galatia were not Greek. They were not even, they were not even sub-Asian, because this is kind of like the sub-Asian continent. They were European. So how in the world did a bunch of Europeans end up in, uh, in, in Greece? Well, what happened is, is they, were, they, were, they were Celts, Gala means tribe, and so they were Gala Celtae, which is what the Romans called them. They were tribes of Celts. They were a specific type of people, and you can see this was where they were all from. And they were very uh, aggressive. They were very warlike. And they kept, what happened is, is they kept making incursions into Greece. So they kept going down into Greece and raiding, you know, taking what they wanted and the whole thing like that. And Greece at the time, that's Greece down here. This is kind of Greece, and that's a little bit more Turkey. But this whole region here, they, uh, they, didn't, they weren't kind of organized in their army. And so these, these, these Gauls were going down into Greece. And finally, the Greeks got it together. They're like, look, we just can't take this anymore. And so they formed themselves together, and, and they stopped them. And they said, listen, truce, truce, truce. What is it going to take for you people to stop coming down here and raiding us? What's it going to take? And they go, well, give us land. And so they ended up giving them land. And they gave them what we know and from the Bible is the province called Galatia. Right? Irish today speak a dialect called Gaelic, which is, again, rooted back into the Gaulic um, uh, roots. So these people were, were this people. The, the Greeks actually called them milk people because their skin was so white. Right? So people from this region were usually had a tan. Right? We're in Miami. Most people here have a tan. It's what we would call ethnically as middle brown. Right? So we have white, we have middle brown, we have black, right? We have, we, we're somewhere in the spectrum of color on this. Well, the people that were in Gaul, were, the people that settled in Galatia, were not like the middle brown people of the Greeks. They were milk people because their skin was white. So they always call them, oh, those are the milk people, those are the milk people. And so what happens is as Paul goes down into this region, he's planting churches, he's having a lot of success in the region of Galatia. He's establishing churches. The gospel is flourishing. Next slide. And what happens here is uh, Galatia became important. Maybe not Paul didn't even quite understand this, but the Spirit of God knew. That's why he sent Paul into that region. And so Paul's planting churches in Galatia. Understandably, that the people in Galatia more than likely would have ties back to their people in Europe. And so by reaching Galatia, the Holy Spirit effectively was going to pave the way for the gospel to come to Europe, just like many of you are from other countries, but yet you still have ties back to the countries from which you were from, right? And so when Paul goes in there and he starts reaching Galatia, there would be a, a, a sort of a, a back road to, um, to Europe, right? 
So he's planting churches, and what's happening is Paul's planting churches. This goes on throughout the New Testament. And so the reason the letters are written, they're called epistles, right? So we have the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's the message, right? We have the book of Acts, which is the mission of the church. And then what we have from essentially Romans through Revelation is we have the mandate or something called epistles. They're letters. So what they are is they're instructions. So if you understand the gospel is the message, the, um, uh, the, the, the book of Acts would be historic or the application of the message. And then the letters are simply guiding points or correcting points back to the message. Do we understand that? So if you understand your Bible, Romans through Revelation, Revelation's kind of its separate book, but if you want to go Romans through Jude, the purpose of those letters are to instruct the people or to instruct the Christian or to instruct the church in how to apply the gospel. That's the whole point, right? And so Paul's writing these letters, one of them being Galatia, Galatians, and he's writing a letter back to the church of Galatia. That's where we get the word Galatians, right? Book of Romans, he's writing a, a letter to the Christians. Where would, where would Romans, where would he be writing to? Anybody? Help me out. Rome, oh man, you guys are good, right? Thessalonians, first and second Thessalonians. There are two letters, first letter to Thessalonica, second letter to Thessalonica, first and second Corinthians. First letter to the, Corinth, to the churches of Corinth, second letter to the church of Corinth. That's what it looks like, right? Paul, Peter, first and second Peter, were written, they're called to a dispersion. So first and second Peter is written to a group of churches, particularly Jews who had been dispersed, who had become converts. So Peter, Peter's letters were written in a broad context, more to a region than to specific churches. So if you get this, you're going to familiarize yourself with your Bible, and you're going to know why it is, what this means. Why, what the heck is the book of Galatians, and why should I read it? Well, it's a letter written to the, to the church at Galatia, because they were struggling with problems. Paul's planting churches, and everywhere Paul went, I've got to make sure I've got enough time here, everywhere Paul went... He adds people following him. Well, who was following him? The Bible calls them Judaizers, uh, among others. He had another group that was following him called Gnostics. And so the Bible, a lot of the letters that are written are written by Paul dealing with issues of Judaizers or dealing with issues of Gnostics. So Paul comes in, lays the foundation, people come to Christ, and then you've got these other groups of people coming in, and they begin to distort the message. The religious zealots... Followed, followed Paul, the Judaizers. They were Jewish zealots. They would come in. they go, hey, you received Jesus? Awesome. Let's put Jesus over here. Now, if you really want to follow God, here's your checklist. Here's your rule-keeping list. Wear your hair like this. Wear certain clothes. Observe this day. Don't observe that day. These are people you can talk to. These are not people you can talk to. Does this sound familiar? We have Christian churches that operate according to this. We have, but yet we have books of the Bible that expressively speak against that, that say that that is not the context to which Christ has called you. He's not called you to a religious ritual observance. He's called you into a relationship with him by the Spirit. And so Paul's dealing with all of these religious zealots that are coming in, and they're saying, hey, look, you received Christ. That's great. But now you've got to keep the law. You have to keep the law. That's what they came in and doing. We have Gnostics coming in, and what Gnostics were doing was they were saying, not the, one of the Gnostic teaching, we see it in some of our religions even today, is it's, we find it a lot in Buddhism, was it's the denial of the material world. And you actually still see Christian churches teaching this form of a doctrine, which means all flesh is bad, all materialism is bad, everything soulish is bad, there is no eternal soul, everything is now, live for today, not only that, but everything around you is bad. So that was a, it was a, what they would call a, monastic traditions, 
We're the denial of the material world. So we're going to deny everything material in order to become more spiritual. That's exactly what the Gnostics were teaching. And so we see this even, we see this kind of thing going on here. And so we have these, these things going on, and Paul is dealing with them to get away from this type of stuff. What denial of the material world was ritual human mastery. Jesus specifically told his disciples in the gospel, beware of the leaven of Herod and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. What is he saying when Jesus says that? Beware of the leaven, which is the teaching of the Pharisees that say that the path to God is through ritual observance. And then he says, beware of the leaven of Herod, which says that you do not need God, that it's all about human mastery. You can get there on your own. Or Jesus is just another compartment of your life, and you've just got to discipline yourself a little bit more and just beat yourself down a little bit more in order to, to actually live the faith. The Bible doesn't teach that. What the Bible teaches is the impossibility of this gospel. Jesus calls you to something that's literally impossible for you. But he gives you the power to do it. How? Through his spirit. And so to walk with Christ is not necessarily... Now, ritual observance and self-mastery are good. But they are not good without the Holy Spirit. So you can do ritual observance without the Holy Spirit, not good. You can do self-mastery without the Holy Spirit, not good. But in the Spirit, you have the power to fulfill the, 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 the worship, the, the things, the offering. Everything is beautiful because it's expressed through the Spirit. Self-mastery expressed through the Spirit is acceptable. It's beautiful. It's actually the only way you have self-mastery is by the Holy Spirit. Okay? People, oh, no, no, I can master myself. I always tell them, how do you forgive, man? Love your enemies. Bake cookies for that person who just completely offended you. Think about the person who you completely despise. And I want you to bake cookies for them and go and tell them, hey, I just want to let you know I love you. All's forgotten. Try that on. You can't do it in yourself. In the spirit, you can. In the spirit, you can. That's the point. You see, Jesus calls us to something that's only fulfilled through the spirit. That's exactly what Paul's going to say. You can't do this in the flesh. Having begun in the spirit, do you now think you can actually do this in the flesh? Rhetorical question, answer is no, you can't. We begin in the Spirit, we have to fulfill it, follow through the Spirit. And so Jesus has given us this idea of what we're to avoid, ritual without Spirit, human effort without Spirit, doctrine of the Pharisees, doctrine of Herod, beware of that. They were preaching to the, to the, to the Christians a different gospel. What's going on here is this church is new. They're a bunch of Gentiles. They don't really even know this God, but they're believing what Paul's saying. Like, man, I'm down with this. And soon they agree with it. Boom, the Holy Spirit comes in their heart, and they're like, what? What is going on here? You know, they're born again. They don't know anything. They don't have any knowledge, but they've got the Spirit. And they're like, man, this is crazy. What's going on here? And so then you have these Judaizers coming in here to these wide-eyed, accepting believers, and they're saying, oh, well, if you really want to get deep and you really want to get holy, well, here's the list. Follow the list. And the whole church had fallen into a ritual of lists. And so Paul is writing to this church to undo this idea that they are, that they are believing. And Paul calls it another gospel. It's a gospel not based on faith. It's a gospel not based on trusting Christ. It's a gospel not based upon the power of the Spirit. It's a gospel based upon human effort. You need to do more. 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 That's actually the doctrine of Pharaoh. Make more bricks. Make more bricks. Make more bricks. I'm all for doing. Christians need to do more. But we need to do more in the power of the Spirit. You understand that? 
This is not an advocacy for laziness. I think that's a problem within the church right now is we have a, a, a cultural laziness among the believer. But it's not doing anything for the sake of doing it. It's doing it in the power of the Spirit, yielding to the Holy Spirit and going forth and doing the things that he wants in his name. That's a whole other message, but nonetheless. Next slide, please. Foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you just you should not obey the truth? This is what he's writing to them. He's saying to them, and I'm going to get to the power of the resurrection here because I want to show you what's going on in order to show you what he's saying and why. This word bewitched means to seduce or to appeal to vanity. Who has appealed to your vanity that you would believe this? And so they were appealing to their vanity because in doing things, in, I keep my hair high and tight, I wear this, you know, women, we've got hair so long we can sit on it, we wear dresses like they wore in the 1800s, we look like we're holy. We look like we're holy. It's an appeal to vanity. Oh, well, I never see an R-rated movie that's not about Jesus. You know, it's an appeal to vanity. You know, oh, I, 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 don't, I don't ever drink coffee. I don't ever drink coffee. I always tell you guys the story when we were in Germany. Um, you know, the Germans would look at us because we would drink a lot of coffee because we're Americans, man. It's what we do, you know. And I think, you think we rock the coffee? You should see the Cubans. They rock the coffee, man. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so the Germans would look at us because we'd have like two or three cups of coffee and they'd be like, why are you drinking all that coffee? Meanwhile, right after church, they'd go to the beer garden and be drinking like a massive you know, they'd be like, oh, come on, Kevin, we're going to go to the beer garden. I'm like, okay, ein mas bitte. And they hand him a beer, and the beer's like that big. And they're all, you know, right after church. And I'm looking at him like, <laughs> you guys got a problem with the coffee? I mean, if you, I mean what, what's going on here? They were appealing. It's an appeal to vanity. So when we think ourselves superior, or we act self-righteously above one another because of something we do or we don't do, or we judge people because of what they do or what they don't do, I'm, ta I'm talking about marginal things here, not about the, the, the core things of the gospel. It's an appeal to vanity. And so what these Christians were doing is they ended up falling into this trap because somebody was appealing to their vanity. And so they were feeling very proud and very, oh, we Galatians, we don't do that. We, you see, we follow the law. We worship only on Saturdays. That's the true gospel. What? Not according to my Bible says, this is what I want to learn from you. He says, everything that happened to you, the power of the Spirit that came to you, did it come by the works of the law? The miracles that you saw, the manifest glory that Jesus performed among you with signs and wonders, because that's the truth, did it happen by the law? I just want to ask this question. How did you get to the point that you were? Was it because of your ritual observance? Or was it because of faith in the Spirit of God? The miracles that you have seen, the Lord come and do, and amazing things that happen. Did it happen because you were ritually observing? Or did it come because of a love and a passion and a, and a heart that you had before him? If indeed it was in vain, therefore he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law? Or does he do it by faith? Great question, right? I've had people, we're grace-centered church. We believe in the center, we don't, we're not universal grace. We believe everybody gets a second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth chance in Jesus' economy. 70 times 7, get up, get moving, keep going in the right direction. That's how it works. I've had people over the years go, pastor's got to be more holiness in this church. Just got to be holiness. I just really feel that there needs to be holiness. Every time somebody talks to me about holiness, so you probably don't want to talk to me about this, because I'm going to ask you this question. What are you struggling with? People who want holiness, they themselves have an area of their life that is out of control. 
And so they're looking to me or they're looking to the church to put some sort of external management upon them so that they can feel justified. That's what they want. Every single person I've ever known that has come to me and wanted to talk to me about, oh, we got to have holiness, holiness. You know there's sin in the church? I'm like, yeah. Do you know I got a few things I want to tell you about that are sinful? I go, yeah, dude, if you want to spend time with me, I got about 20 other things that you don't have any idea about, right? I'm well aware of it. Jesus is well aware of it. He's not shocked, right? We call people unto the grace, into the faith, into the loving relationship with Christ. This is what we do. We don't ignore it. We deal with it, but we deal with it in a manner of grace. We call people from where they are to where they need to be. It doesn't come through ritual observance. You can't break addictions through, through personal management. You can't. You got to heal the heart. You got to heal the brokenness, and you need the power of the Spirit to overcome your junk. Give yourself a break. You should be free in this place this morning. You know, I'm messed up, aren't we all? And you can't help you. There are little things that you can do, of course. But at the root, you can't help you. Only That's why you need a Savior. That's why you need Jesus. He has to help you help you. And you have to let him help you. <laughs> he says, does it happen by works? Of course not. It happens through faith. It happens through the Spirit. The emphasis in the New Testament is on the Holy Spirit. I think the church has got to go back and read this stuff and understand the centrality of the Holy Spirit. I get people that go, oh, well, I just follow Jesus. I just follow Jesus. And I've been meditating on this because I get this a lot. We just follow Jesus. Oh, Kevin, don't get into doctrine. Oh, that's just so divisive. Don't get into these things. It's just like, you know, we just want to follow Jesus. I'm like, yeah, which Jesus? Fairy Jesus? Which Jesus? I just need to know which Jesus we're following here. Because according to the Bible, if you want to read the New Testament beyond the Gospels, you're going to be shocked at how many times the name of Jesus is mentioned on his own. Jesus is always mentioned as Jesus the Christ, Christ Jesus, or Christ. Christ being anointed. Jesus is never separated from his power. Jesus is never separated from his purpose. Jesus is never separated from his mission. The Bible screams he's the anointed one. He's not Jesus, so we just want to serve his... I serve Jesus the Christ. I serve the one who brings power. I serve the one who brings purpose. I serve the one who brings provision. That's who I serve, right? And so we have to understand this. We've got to get it right. We've got to get it right. The culture will drift until the Christian gets it right in understanding conceptually what the, this thing is all about. There's an emphasis on the Holy Spirit. We can't do it without him. Jesus said, it's to your benefit I go. If I don't go, the, the, the anointing that I carry, because I come from heaven, the Spirit comes upon me in this world, what I'm carrying, I'm going to give to you. And it won't happen unless I go. There's a heavy emphasis on the Holy Spirit. For as many as of the works of the law are under the curse. In other words, what Paul's going to tell them here is if you're going to live by ritual, if you're going to live your life by ritual, not by faith and grace, you're under a curse. Well, what does curse mean? Absence of blessing. What is he telling them? There's no blessing on the ritual. None. The blessing's on faith in the Spirit. Do the ritual in faith in the spirit, there's blessing on it. But the blessing by itself in the ritual is not there. So he's telling the Galatian Christians, you are literally moving away from the very root of your faith by giving yourself only to ritual. The law without blessing, it's all or nothing. What Paul's saying is if, you, if you're guilty of one part of the law, you're condemned by the whole. What does that mean? No one is justified by the law. What's the law? Ten commandments. How are we doing on that? Right? It set you free here this morning. I've heard churches and, you know, we have different debates. My position is, and what I understand the gospel to say, the law is a schoolmaster to lead me to Christ. 
The law was never meant to be kept. We're like going to keep the Ten Commandments. I always ask him, how you doing on that? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. How you doing on that? Right? Have no idols before you. Go golfing. I mean, it's like, how, how, create no other idol beside him. None. Honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. Do we do that? Do not take the names of the Lord in vain. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not covet. Do not commit adultery. Have Jesus said, do you do it? We all do it. So in other words, if I'm guilty of part, I'm guilty of the whole. So the law cannot justify me. If I've lusted in my heart, the whole, I'm guilty of the whole of the law. If I've wanted to kill somebody in my heart, I'm guilty of the whole of the law. What the Bible's telling us is that the law cannot make you right. The law is a mirror to say you're a sinner. So why people, we think we're self-justified. We think we're good. Oh, I'm a good person. Really? Let's hold the mirror up and take a look. Right? Let's take a look. Let's look according to the mirror of, of God's righteousness. Have you ever lusted in your heart? Well, of course, we all have. You know what that makes you? What? According to the Bible, you're an adulterer. You ever lied? Well, everybody has. You know what that makes you, according to the Bible? A liar. So you're a lying adulterer, right? Have you ever stolen anything? Everybody has. Well, you're a lying, thieving adulterer. Now, how we doing? We still good? <laughs> there is none righteous, no, not one. The law is a mirror. That's what it's for, is to reveal sin that we could see the Savior. We could look past ourselves for salvation. That's the point of the law. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Aren't you glad? He's taken away the place that has no blessing. Having become a curse for us, for curses everyone hangs on a tree. The purpose of the cross was to take the curse upon him. He took your curse, he took mine. Why did he do this? Important. Why did Jesus do this? To save us. True. But let's look at the text. Why did Jesus die on the cross? To bring people born again. Absolutely. Absolutely. No question. But it tells us here that the promise of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles. And it also tells us that the promise of the Spirit might come upon us through faith. What's Jesus prioritizing here? He's prioritizing the forgiveness of sin through the cross, but he's also prioritizing the promise of Abraham, and he's also prioritizing the Holy Spirit. So when we, absent, when we deny the promises of God and we deny the presence of the Holy Spirit, we are lacking the priorities of the gospel that Jesus laid out. He laid out these as priorities. Salvation, absolutely. I take nothing from that, and don't write me a letter, because I, 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 we're agreed on that. But where we're often not agreed is the promises of God. And where we're often not agreed, people, Christians disagree, is whether or not the promises are given to us, or whether or not the promise of the Spirit means anything. According to the Bible, it's the central point in which Christ died. He went to the cross to save you and forgive you, but he went to the cross that blessing might come upon you. He went to the cross so that the Spirit might come upon you. So if we neglect his promises and we neglect his Spirit, we are neglecting the essence of why he went to the cross. What is the, what is the blessing of Abraham? Here's my, theological, here's my theological self arguing with me, right? I've had people go, well, the blessing of Abraham is that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. There's no pronouncement of blessing there. Where in, there is that, where in that statement, in that verse, is there a pronouncement of blessing? It doesn't exist. You know what a pronouncement of blessing is? In Hebrews 6 and in Genesis, I think it's 32, maybe a little earlier. But in Genesis and in Hebrews, the pronouncement of blessing. What is the blessing of Abraham? You guys want to know what the blessing of Abraham is? Because it's yours. You, you don't know what's yours unless you know what it is, right? The Bible right here says the blessing of Abraham is yours. What's the blessing of Abraham? You ready? Say it with me. Surely, Surely. in blessing, I will bless you. And in multiplying, I will multiply you. That is the blessing of Abraham. And it's yours. What does that mean? Because you believe me, I'm going to bless you. 
Because you believe me, I'm going to multiply you. I'm going to increase you. I'm going to expand your borders. I'm going to raise you to new levels of influence. That's the blessing of Abraham that's given to the church. That is the pronouncement of blessing that Jesus, that, 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 that was placed upon Abraham's life. And that is yours. Is yours. Aren't you glad that the promise of the Spirit might come by faith? Jesus died to bring the Holy Spirit, people. He died not just to save you, to forgive you, to restore you, to redeem you. He died to give you power. Life in the Spirit. Power. Presence. Purpose. Purpose of the cross. Next slide, please. You are all sons and daughters. Ha ha. So we're talking about, I think, four things here. What the cross does for us. Your sons and daughters through faith in Christ. For as many of us were baptized in the Christ, you've put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For all are one in Christ Jesus. See there again, we have Christ Jesus. Through Christ Jesus. Through Christ Jesus. If you read your New Testament, you're going to see the emphasis upon Jesus the Christ, Christ Jesus Christ. Rarely are you going to see the name Jesus mentioned by itself apart from in the Gospels when it's directly quoting him. Almost never you see that. What does it mean? There's no separation between Christ and his power. Can't be done. Can't be done. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. Neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ. And if Christ, you're Abraham's seed. Ha ha, here we go. As if we didn't get it in the last verse, he's going to say it again. You are now Abraham's seed, and you what? Heirs according to the promise. What promise? In blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. See that? So what does the resurrection do for us? It positions us. That through faith in Christ Jesus, we are positioned. Everybody say it. I'm a son and daughter. Through faith in Christ. And I'm glad. Thank you, Jesus. You are now a son and a daughter, a son or a daughter. You have now been positioned through the cross and faith in Jesus. You now have a new position, a new identity. Your past doesn't matter. What anybody else said about you doesn't matter. You are now his, and everything you are comes from him. Aren't you glad? Baptism unifies us. So what the cross does is it positions us through faith. Baptism into Christ. Baptism unifies us. So Jesus wants us unified. That's what baptism is. It's a unity. I identify. Jesus died for me. And he rose again. I identify. I died to myself. This is the point of baptism. And I live to Christ. You're literally not only giving your life away in faith. When you're baptized, you're surrendering your life. I no longer live for me. I live for him. I no longer, my life is no longer my own. I died to myself, and I'm, the life I live, I now live to Christ. That's the idea. You're now unified with him in faith by, through baptism. But we're not only unified with him, we're unified with one another. There's unity among us. We cannot take the unity that we have as brothers and sisters for granted. It's a Greek word called koinonia. Say it with me, koinonia. koinonia. And it means bond. We translate it as fellowship, but its core root means bond. We are bonded together, you and I. We are, we are bonded, which means the bond cannot be separated. It can be broken. This bond that Jesus gives to us is not meant to be separated. It's a bond, it's, but it can be broken. And so what oftentimes we do as brothers and sisters, while we disagree, you can agree to disagree, we can move on without breaking the bond. You see what I'm saying? But what happens is, is oftentimes in our immaturity, we don't understand the bond that we have with one another, the symbiotic bond that we have with the church, and we break the bond. And when we break the bond, we cause cracks, 
We cause fragments. We cause jagged edges, not only into the fellowship of the persons that we have been with, but into the fellowship of our own life. And we go forth because we have broken a bond, damaged. And we leave behind us damaged because we have not managed the koinonia in a healthy way. You understand what I'm talking about? So when it comes to us dealing with one another, we have got to be gracious. Jesus holds the bond of fellowship not only with himself but with one another very high. We, we very high. So no matter what, we can agree to disagree. We can, whatever it is we're going to happen in your Christian journey with him, we have got to be gracious in the bond of fellowship and how we apply it and be careful not to break. Equality of acceptance, this is what the Bible says. We're all one in Christ. This is the deal, okay? You guys want doctrine? I'm, I'm going to give you theology. You guys want it? I'm going to give it to you. We're giving you steak and potatoes here this morning. Right? Steak and eggs. <laughs> Throw some grits in there, southern style. A little cafe con leche, you know, mix it all in. <laughs> I was at a Cuban restaurant, a guy's eating grits, and he gets a, he gets a colada or whatever it is. What is this little one? Yeah, he pours it in his grits. I'm not lying. I'm looking at the dude. He's like drinking it. He pours it in the grits. Like, that's new. <laughs> we have equality of acceptance. The theological term is egalitarian, which means we're all equal before Christ. All of us are equal. Equally accepted, slave, free, Jew, Gentile, male, female. But what we are is we're unique in our calling and in our purposes. This is what's called complementarian, okay? I, my gifts and callings are present before you. The purpose of my gifts and callings are to complement you, to complement what God has put in you, right? The purpose of your gifts and callings are to complement the church, one another, other people's lives. This is the idea of complementarian. So we have egalitarian concept. There's other applications to these words, but I'm giving you this, con this application. Egalitarian means we're all equally accepted. No big eyes, no little U's. We're all equal in God's acceptance. He loves us accepted in Christ equally. But we are different in our callings. And in our callings, the greater the calling, the greater the servitude is to be attached to the calling. Right? So if the calling is great, then the servitude must be great. That's how it works. And so whatever the calling is, it's to be able to complement one another. Equal in Christ, but complementing one another in our thing. And not only that, we're made heirs. So we have a position, we have a unity, and this is what unity looks like. And then we're made heirs. Heirs of what? Next slide. Heirs according to the promise. What is the promise? Is the promise again? Say it with me. The promise, the promise. is blessing, blessing. and multiplication. Does anybody not want blessing and multiplication? Everybody want multiplication and blessing? You know why you want it? Do you know why you want it? You know, you're made to want it, not because you're greedy. You're made to want it because he made you that way. He made you hungry to want what he offers. And we teach again this whole idea of, well, that's just bad. It's just so bad. You know, you're, t you're teaching the doctrine of the Gnostics to teach people to not hunger for the things of God and to not desire of the Father and to not desire the things of heaven. To teach that is a, den is a denial of the very thing that Jesus wanted to give us. Okay? I'm saying this very generally. I, this, there's a lot of nuances to what I said, but I'm just giving you a general understanding. We're heirs to Abraham's promise. This is the key. Say this with me. The access, the access. to the promise, the promise. is dependent, dependent upon my maturity. I say that the heir, so long, my favorite verse in the Bible, I say that the heir, that's you and I, as long as you are a child, you're no different than a slave, though you be master of all, but as under stewards and guardians until the time appointed by the Father. What does that mean? 
You're masters of all. I am? Yes, you are. According to the Bible, you're heirs of his world. You have access to his spirit, seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. These aren't poems. These are truths, right? But as long as you're a child, as long as you operate with the kingdom in an immature way, you're no different than a slave. In other words, you're not operating in the power, the presence, the liberty, the blessing that God would have for you, the destiny that God would have for you because of levels of immaturity in your life. So what's the key? Maturity is the key. Everybody say, grow up. That's the key. Your promotion is directly related to your maturity. And we're going to talk briefly about Christian maturity. What does Christian maturity look like? Understanding son and daughtership. Identity is probably the most prominent key to all of the kingdom. Son and daughtership. Identity is essential to understanding anything. Oh, I'm a son and daughter. I would be, I, you know, big movement in the spiritual churches these days. Sons and daughters, sons and daughters. I'm like, what's a son and daughter? Do you know? Do you know what son and daughter is? No, but we're sons and daughters because Jesus said we are. Sons and daughters obey their father. That's first. Sons and daughters expand their father's business. That's the second thing. So if we understand who we are as sons and daughters, then we're in communion and obedience with the will of our father. If we understand who we are as sons and daughters, then we're in obedience and communion by making the father's business known. That's what it means to be a son and daughter. Try that on and see if there's not blessing on it. I guarantee you there's blessing on that. You're going to, whoa, what happened here? Because you're lining up with your identity. It's not an issue of knowing it. It's an issue of following it. Understanding sonship, who we are, why we are, what our purpose is. Prophetic provision and power is attached to purpose. What is your purpose as a son and daughter? What does it mean? What does it mean? The Bible tells us what it means. People go, well, I'm a son and daughter. I'm just going to worship my father. Okay, that's one aspect of it. But can we go a little deeper into the scripture and actually look at what son and daughter means? Because it's, very, it's there. It's very clear. It's very clear. One son said he would, and he did it. He didn't do it. One son said they wouldn't do it, and they did it. Which one was the son? Jesus asked. So what's he predicating son and daughtership on? Obedience. Okay? That's one of the premises that he places upon it. There's others. It's also knowing what's yours. It's also appropriating what's yours. It's also expanding your father's business and serving in the manner that your father would have you. That's what it means. It begins, what does Christian maturity look like? It begins with the basics. What are the basics? Read your Bible. Pray. Commit and connect to church. Financially give and live on mission. If you cannot operate in those five principles, you are not mature. I didn't blink. If you cannot operate in those five principles, you are not mature. Call yourself whatever you want, but according to the context of Scripture, you are not operating in maturity. And if you are not operating in maturity, you are an heir who is no different than a slave. And you want to know and want to know why these things aren't happening or why there's distance or why there's separation or why these things aren't going on? It's because you're an heir who is operating as a slave because you can't even do remedial math. You can't get one plus one equals two. I don't want to read my Bible. I don't think I should have to read my Bible. You're not going to graduate. I don't want to go to church. I don't think I should have to go to church. I go to church when I feel like it. Undisciplined son. Undisciplined daughter. You can live that way. You're free. Okay? But you cannot claim the air. You cannot claim the promise. Because you're not over promises operate according to principle. And you are not operating, you are not activating the principle. Therefore, the promise does not activate. So, you know, willful thinking isn't going to change it. It is what it is. You know, you kick against the goads. That's what Paul, Jesus said to Paul. You're going against the process, Paul. It's hard to kick against the goads, isn't it? 
You want the goads or the thorn bush to move, but it isn't moving. You want it to be different, but it isn't different. It's the way he says it is. That's, that's the point. And so what God is calling a people to is to a level of understanding. He's calling a people to a mountain. The people who want to go to the mountain is what he's calling for. The people who want to stay in the valley, lots of them. Many Christians want to stay in the valley. They don't want to do even the basics. They don't care. I don't need to know my primary colors. I don't need to know remedial math. I don't need to know any of this. I just love Jesus. Woo! Woo! Jesus says, why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? Let's get it clear, okay? We answer with the scripture. This is what the Bible teaches us. What would the father do with you right now as a son and daughter in this season of his life? This is what Christian maturity is. As a son and daughter in Christ today, this season of your life, what would God be having you to do? Some of you would be raising your children. Some of you would be taking care of aging parents. Some of you would be doing greater things or other things, not greater things, but other things beyond that. What is it that he has told you to do that you are not doing? Hello. What is it that you know to do and are not doing? This is what Christian maturity looks like. This is what it means to operate as an heir. What is in your heart to do that you're not doing? What do you need to repent of? Did he just use the word repent? I didn't think we used those words in churches anymore. The word repent is actually happening in a church. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> repent means to return. What is it that you've taken? What is it that you've not done? What area of your life that you are having ownership of that you've not surrendered? What is the area of your life that you still claim ownership of? What area of your life do you need to give back to him? That's what repentance means. Give back. Return. Metanoia, change your mind. But teshuva, Hebrew, means to return. Teshuva, we return. Metanoia, we change our mind. Next slide. You guys get anything out of this? All right. My foot's on the gas, all right? It's like, we're going through four chapters of Ephesians right now. Bam, bam, bam. All in 40 minutes. Last slide. So he gives us position. He gives us unity, all right? He gives us a purpose. He gives us a destiny. And he grants us intimacy. All of these things are what Jesus died to give you. This is the power of the cross. This is the power of the resurrection. It tells us because you are sons and daughters, God has sent forth his spirit into your heart. Wow. So how do you get the Holy Spirit? By being what? A son or a daughter. He is yours, right? And how do you become a son or daughter? By putting faith in Christ. Faith in Christ makes me a son or daughter. Now that I'm a son or daughter, you mean I have access to his spirit? Absolutely. Well, how much access? As much as you want. As much as you want. How much do you want? How thirsty are you? How hungry are you? That's the question. How much do you want? You say, I feel like I, I, I can't, you know, like, there's, then ask God to make you bigger so that you can carry more of him. Ask God to expand you so that you can be more like him. He gives us intimacy. So the spirit is given into our heart to produce intimacy, to get us to draw close. Why would we want to draw close? So that we can all have an experiential encounter with Jesus? I'm all for experiential encounters with Jesus. The reason that we draw for, for, close is to hear our Father's heart. Do you understand that? That intimacy is to draw us forth so that as sons and daughters, we hear the beat of our Father's heart and we go forth to live the beat of our Father's heart. That's the whole point. You understand? We teach a doctrine in America. We were, had a discussion group last night. We were talking about it. 
and just differences. I mean, we're in a multicultural church and we're a regional area, so we get, you know, you know, for me as a leader, for Sherry and I, even other people, we get to see different aspects of different cultures and we get to see the values of different cultures, right, in comparison to the one that we grew up in, which is America. And some of you, you know, you're not American, and, and there are things that you think, but, but they're like, like if you grew up, like if I, I didn't grow up in some of, the, some of your countries, there are cultural things about your country that even if I lived there, I wouldn't really understand because I, I, I haven't really been there. You know what I'm saying? And so like what we value often in America is we value the individual. We value individuality very highly. And that's not really the case in other cultures. Individuals are not put at the forefront. In America, it's all about you, how you feel, what you want, when you want it. You know, it's all about you. You deserve a break today, you know, whatever it is. <laughs> That's not necessarily the heart of the Father. You know? And so we draw near to the Lord, and we think that intimacy with the Lord, it's all about me. That is American culture. That's not gospel. We have to differentiate that. In America, we think it's all about us. We think our worship experience, we think everything that we do, Jesus is all about me. It's all about me, 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 me. Worship is about me. Well, worship is about you, but the connection point is always with a purpose. Everything God does is always with a purpose. He is never without a purpose. And so when you draw near to the Father's heart, we get close, we get refreshed, we get restored, we get re-energized, and then we go forth in his name. To do what? to take what he has given us and make it known in the world. Go, right? That's the idea. We're not isolated or insulated only upon ourselves. So the, the, the cross gives us the spirit who gives us, who gives us intimacy, and then the spirit gives us liberty. We're no longer slaves, but we're sons and daughters and heirs to the kingdom of God through Christ. This is the breaking point from slave to heir is obedience to the Holy Spirit. We have to learn to be obedient to the things that the spirit is telling us to do. And I can tell you, when people go, well, I prayed about it, you know, and I feel like the Holy Spirit's telling me I don't need to give anymore. I don't know what spirit told you that, but that's not the Holy Spirit. I prayed about it, and I feel like the Holy Spirit told me I don't need to go to church anymore. Well, again, I don't know what spirit's telling you that, but that's not the Holy Spirit. Well, I prayed about it, you know, and I feel like I don't need to read my Bible anymore. I just need to meditate upon the deeper, richer things of God and Jesus who will reveal all things to me. Well, again, I don't know what spirit told you that, but that's not the Holy Spirit. It's not. You know, I don't feel like I need to evangelize. Well, I don't think that, I don't know, or I don't need to tell anybody about Jesus, or I don't need to do anything like that. I feel like that's what the Holy Spirit's told me. I just don't need to do that. Well, again, I don't know who, what Spirit told you that, but that is not the Holy Spirit. So we have to get that right, okay? And so it's this liberty, this freedom that we have in Christ. We live through the Spirit. We get filled with the Spirit. Look, okay, I'm going to tell you guys something. Yeah, I mean, all right, we, we, we've all had some experiences at some level in some way of whether we party or whether we just got so beyond ourselves that we didn't know what we were doing. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Right? Okay, they call it the pastor's hangover. So on Monday morning, typically pastors wake up and go, I said, what? What did I say? Because <laughs> we say things and you're like, what did I just say? Right? The liberty that we have in Christ is that in the spirit, saturated in his love, full of the spirit, like just the love is just in you. Anybody know what I'm talking about when you're in the spirit like that? You know what I'm talking about? Just, wow, man. What the Bible tells you that in that condition, there is no law. There is no law. Because you are operating in the supremacy of love. You want to break out your wallet and start throwing down 20s and break it out. You want to you go and do something kind or gracious or generosity or whatever, love or forgiveness. In that condition, that's what the Bible talks about, the liberty in the spirit. 
in that love condition, there's no law. There's no limit. Do what's in your heart to do because you are now operating in the fullness of love. So what's the key? Get into the fullness of love. Get into the spirit. All right? Well, I have more to say, but I'm out of time. <laughs> if you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Jesus, this is why Jesus went to the cross. He went to the cross to not only forgive you, but to bring you into a family. And to not just bring you into a family, but to bring you into a purpose. This is his ultimate goal. To make you and to create in you and to give you life in a way that you've never had. And to call you into the very reason in which you were created. To forgive you, to restore you, to heal you. And if you've never asked Jesus into your heart, we're going to close the service with two prayers. And the first one's invitational. And the church is going to pray with you because we're family. It's koinonia. We're unified. We're one. We're in this together. We want to give you an opportunity to pray in agreement with this and just open your heart and receive Jesus this morning. You say, what do I got to do? Believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. It's as easy as that. It can't get any easier. You say, I don't understand it. He never said you had to understand it. He said you had to believe it. <coughs> Belief and understanding are two different worlds. And so all you got to do is just pray with us. And so we're going to close this right here and just pray along. Just give your heart, open up your heart and say, I'm going for it. Say, dear Jesus, I believe you are the Savior. And I need a Savior. I may not understand this, but I choose to believe it. And I open my heart to you, Jesus. And I ask you to come inside. I ask you to heal me. I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to restore me. And I ask you to repurpose my life. All that I am, I give to you. And all that you are, I receive as mine. From this day forward, I choose to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you're here this morning and you need prayer for anything, we have a prayer team available. I'm over. I've got to wrap it up. But I want to speak one more blessing over you, so just receive this. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you. And may he be gracious to you and give you peace in Jesus' name. God loves you. We love you. Have a great week.